You're listening to Paper Napkin. I'm Kendra Rogers. I'm excited to share this episode with you, which was a total blast from my past, but also an incredibly educational and thought-provoking conversation with someone who is both knowledgeable and passionate about racial justice, open-minded education, and lasting change. Courtney Walcott is a teacher, community advocate and organizer and basketball coach. Courtney and I met when we were super dorky 14 year olds hanging out at bus stations. But even then he was and has always been thoughtful, considerate, funny, wise and wicked smart. Courtney has been a teacher for the past five years. And last year in the wake of the murder of George Floyd, Courtney petitioned the Calgary Board of Education to form an anti-racism task force. He was nominated for a Prime Minister's Award for Teaching Excellence by his students and helped to bring together 15 community organizations to successfully advocate for $8 million in additional community funding from the City of Calgary to address the needs of vulnerable Calgarians. To me, he really embodies connection, community, and collaboration, and I'm so excited for our conversation. Courtney, thank you so much for joining me. I'm so excited to chat with you about the future of connection. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you so much, Kendra, for having me. And honestly, it's been a long time. I just am happy to have a conversation with someone that I haven't spoken with in a while. And actually, in the in the nature of Paper Napkin, what this podcast is about, it's kind of exciting because we, for context, were good friends 15 years ago, which ages us both. But it's really interesting and exciting to get a chance to reconnect with you and having this conversation and, and seeing you from the outside and the ways that you connect. I'm really excited to learn a little bit more about what that looks like actually for you on the front line. But to get started, the first question uh, is what you do and why you do it. So I'm a teacher. I'm a teacher first and foremost. And how it started and why I, I did it was very natural. So I did a history degree first. And then I honestly had a lot of questions about where that would take me in life and, and what the value was. And I found myself constantly trying to explain things to people. And that's what I loved about history, provided you that context. So you can make those explanations and you can talk about issues and nuance. So I figured, why not make that a profession? <laughs> so that's why I decided to pursue education right after, because it really just helped me make use of what I felt were necessary pieces of information that made the world make sense. Or at least I should say, made sense of the things that many people don't understand, myself included. So after university, when I went into education, honestly, life just became so much easier. I spent my life having building relationships with, with students, high school students. So yeah, it was about making sense of the world. And I was very happy to, to get into it. And it's been a great, about six years now. And alongside that, you're also a coach, a community organizer, and you are running for a special role. Do you want to share mm -hmm. a little bit more about that? So I love coaching. I'm a basketball fan myself. Coaching was a natural extension of teaching. It's about finding your passion. And I'm going to tell every student in front of me at all times, find your passion and you'll love doing it. That sounds so cliche because it is cliche because the people who say it are the people who've done it. <laughs> cliches become cliches when successful people, writers, lovers, great historians, they provide these little nuggets of information that get reused and overused and find what you love is one of them. But the reason why they get to say it is because they've done it. And I love basketball. I love teaching. So I became, I became a coach and 
let's just say coaching coaching basketball is ridiculous takes a lot out of you but i didn't care uh because it was something that i enjoyed so over the last little bit of time as a teacher you have these conversations with students you start giving them these little nuggets of information find what you love and what ended up happening was that over the course of the years as a social studies and an english teacher in a high school students will start asking you pretty powerful questions about where they're going to go next they're going to start asking you pretty powerful questions about what the world looks like outside of the look the safe walls of a school as when I, i say safe with quotations because we all remember what high school was like how do you answer it especially when you're 24 starting teaching how do you answer that question the, the hard part is the answer is simple and i think that's the most frustrating part of the conversation with students is that the answer is actually simple it's just doing it is challenging and for me it's getting engaged and push for more so what does that look like find out what you don't like about the world and push for more hold people accountable push for more if you love something do it as often as possible and find a way to make it worthwhile in your life practically of course cuz you have to have some pragmatism but push for more so last year was inflammatory for the entire world and i've spent the last 5 years of my life working within the school systems to try and bring about equity and inclusion and anti-racism work into the curriculum into pedagogies and teaching styles and my students recognized it and they were involved in so much of this work So last year when people finally started to get active because last year with Black Lives Matter last year with George Floyd last year with the protests that were international these aren't new things Black Lives Matter is not a new conversation defund the police is not a new conversation they're they're 150 200 years old but last year was the first time i would say since 2012 once black lives matter really started that the activation level reached a new zenith a new height my students they felt that and they were part of that activation so they would ask me what do we do the answer is simple it's get involved but what does that look like what is that practically so that's where my community organization came in and my advocacy came in is that as someone who understood history and nuance and systems i decided to take that step a little bit further and start engaging publicly in these processes of trying to push for transformative change trying to engage the city engage the municipal government engage all the different stakeholders that exist in this worlds for this including my students to push for more find some way to create some more change the end result was an amazing year of advocacy here in Calgary i'm one of the organizers of a group called the fund to fund which really fought to assist in shift policy surrounding police budgets and what it actually looks like to have a transformative mental health system and honestly all that work it was beautiful we ended up getting 8 million dollars from the city to push for different harm reduction tactics for people in crisis and it was an amazing success but it taught me a lot and one of the things that it taught me was that there isn't a lot of representation at the table of leadership so while these advocacy groups are powerful there wasn't anyone on the inside of the system that reflected the outside of the system or at least the organizations and groups that i was dealing with and that i was working with and that i was representing so that's where a decision was made close to the end of the year a little bit more impromptu definitely not planned to take on that role and to put my name forward to run for city council here in Calgary Alberta so October 18 2021 I'm hoping to win a seat on city council so we can actually have in the words of Solange Knowles a seat at the table when you actually lay it out it makes complete sense that you are where you are it's such a incredible journey I'm interested in what you said around this idea of trying to make the world make sense. And you mentioned that 
you tell your students to get engaged and push for more. Does that feel like a way to make the world make sense? Apathy and complacency are actually the number one reason why the world is broken. There's no shame in admitting that everybody has different sets of self-interest. That's actually just a common goal, a common understanding of the world around us. Everybody has their own degree of self-interest. So knowing that means that there are people who will take advantage of the system in a way to disenfranchise and disengage the other, whoever the other may be. Sometimes it is the youth, sometimes it is the BIPOC community, and sometimes just people who have a different set of political beliefs. But whatever you can do to disengage the other will help you build up your own set of self-interest. So you do that for 150 years, you, you see the, those people taking advantage of those privileges for hundreds of years. That's how the world around us is made. And by recognizing it, that's when you can actually start to change it. You see, one thing about students that I love so much is that if you give them a moral dilemma, young people will always find the morality and the ethical answer in it. They haven't been jaded by nuanced systems of bureaucracy. They haven't been jaded by administration. They can just tell what's right from what's wrong. So when you speak to them and you show them, hey, look at this system, how do you feel about it? And they'll sit there and be like, that's terrible. How can that happen? Well, luckily I've been in a blessed position to be able to explain it to them. And I'm like, well, here's how it happened, especially looking at last year. So many people were like, how can the United States and Canada have such an issue with race? And I know other countries feel the exact same way. How can we have these systems in place that have these clear disproportionate effects on certain communities? It just doesn't seem right. They can recognize it. Once you get engaged, you realize that there's an answer to that question. And once you answer that question, you can start to pinpoint the systems that need to be changed. I don't even remember where we started, but <laughs> I hope that makes sense. <laughs> yeah, it does make sense. And it's really interesting as well, what you said earlier around this need to engage publicly. And I'm interested in pulling that thread a little bit with you because actually there's a bravery in the public engagement and there is a sort of fear that comes with it in this world, especially in, in the time we are in now where everything is at people's fingertips and there's a lack of connection in engagement. What you're doing in engaging publicly is so valuable in those larger conversations. I'm wondering when it comes to your students, for example, do you encourage them to engage publicly and to have these sort of discourses? Yes, yes, and yes, and no. So there are things that I want them to do, but then there's also a little bit of self-care that's necessary in this process. So the moment you start to engage publicly, you put yourself on a platform where it gets a little dangerous. And for students, I don't want to put them at that risk because like you said, it does take a lot of bravery, it takes a lot of courage, and it takes a lot of self-awareness to be able to step into those types of moments, those types of, of venues, speak up and be comfortable enough to make mistakes, be comfortable enough to grow from those mistakes and be comfortable enough not to be dissuaded from your vision and your values, even if people are coming after you. I will still wanna protect my students from what is the vitriolic atmosphere sometimes. Now, with that said though, there are tools to engage. And this is actually something that I've engaged in. So last June, right at the end of the year, that's where it runs. I had a COVID, students were at home, plus you have everything going on in the United States. We have protests on the streets here, thousands of people showing up. And a lot of the students were trying to figure out how to engage. 
because there's a difference between wanting to engage and having the skills to do so. So I actually would help them with especially negotiating what it is that how people argue on the internet and what that looks like and the effect that it has on them. And I had a lot of great conversations. I did some presentations on seeking out logical fallacies in internet arguments. And it seemed ridiculous that I have to do this, but it's a skill. It's a very necessary skill because the one thing that comes with time and failure it, it, from this process is that you start to develop the skills to respond to it. And high school students, I want to make sure that they can do that and are prepared to do that as best as possible before they leave high school and then it becomes completely up to them. So it's a yes and a no, because yes, I want every single citizen to have those skills. I want every citizen to engage publicly with ideas that are problematic but I'm also a teacher and I want to protect my students. So I got to make sure that I do that in whatever way is safest for them until they become citizens in full in their own right when I'm not looking over them. <laughs> it's interesting what you said about protecting them as well. And what you mentioned around the bravery, but also the putting yourself at risk. Is that something that as you have moved more into the public eye, you have felt yourself? 100%, definitely. Since the moment we go public, I've been one of three or four major spokesperson for Defund to Fund, which is essentially an organization of about 15 public-facing groups that are BIPOC, LGBTQ+, non-people of color, right, Black, that have come over to unify and create a platform that really addresses the heart of what the defund the police has meant historically, not just the hashtag that follows over the internet, because people will tag that, of course, into a million different things, and they won't really have a full understanding of it. So we got together so that we could have a real conversation and run a real campaign toward municipal politics to help support that policy shift, that policy change, and the true reasoning behind it all, which is just simply harm reduction. Being one of those spokespeople, the vitriol came back quick. And it was it was challenging at first to deal with that even I was going with when I'm seeing some of the comments that are getting made because, I mean, at, at its core, I just want to do something good for the city. And I know that that's what most people have, those good intentions. But then some people don't. Some people are cruel and some people are mean and those people can actually dissuade you from taking those great leaps toward visionary futures. When I took the step into politics, that was my first experience with individualized trolling. So when I publicly announced that I was going to be running for city council, you see, it changed because when it was defund to fund, they lumped us all together, but we could lean on each other. But when I put my name out there to run for city council, now the attacks are a little bit more directed toward my credibility. They're directed toward the people hanging on every word that I say. And there's a new weight to it that I'm only recently engaging with. And coming out of teaching is fascinating because for teaching, I just didn't put anything online because I didn't ever want to have the impact of students finding me online. But now that I'm making this step, I'm playing it even more uniquely and it's challenging, but it hasn't dissuaded me because I had some great support. I got some great people on side that are helping me through this process and helping me understand what it means to be a public figure. So many different avenues that I'd love to touch on. One of the things that came to mind as you were speaking was you spoke earlier about self-care and you have chosen challenging directions to go 
even when it comes to teaching high school students. And, and I mean, I know that you've said that you love it, but there are people who would be intimidated just by that alone. And you look at all of the other things that you're doing and there's a level of intimidation there, but actually you perhaps need a thick skin to be a high school teacher. Correct me if I'm wrong. Do you think that there are any self-care techniques that you learned in your teaching that you've been able to translate into your activism work or are they sort of separate in your mind as far as, I guess, dealing with people with very differing views or maybe feeling as though there are conflicts in conversation. I obviously, high school students are very different than trolls on the internet. I recognize that, but I just wonder if there's any connection. I want some of them. The thing about teaching is that it's a profession that's defined by attrition. Who can last longer? One of the first things they tell you is that most teachers move on in the first five years because they burn out. So I'll put it this way. Self-care is not on uh, like a lot of teachers' priority list. So the idea of self-care it's an ongoing conversation that I don't think very many teachers have figured out. We can always empathize with this idea that the fact that we're still doing it means that we're surviving. But this is where the self-care part comes in. And this is something that I'm not afraid to, to share with people. The problem that's in front of you right now will almost always be the biggest problem in your life because it's the one that's right in front of you. Then the next one will come along and it will be the biggest problem in your life and it will all of a sudden dwarf the last one. And then the next one will come along and that's kind of the natural progression of the world. People talk about wisdom as if it comes from age, but I truly don't believe that wisdom comes from experience. And there's lots of people who live their life with some great gaps of years between these major life-changing problems. So I'm circling back, to be honest, about this idea of self-care. I've been lucky enough to choose a career and I've had enough life experience that I've built up a degree of resilience that I'm actually very proud of. And I don't want to sound like braggy, but I, I am proud of the idea that I can often put my head down and get things done. And I've seen it play out in a variety of situations. It, it doesn't bother me to spend 12 hours a day working because I spent my first two years teaching, I spent 16 hours working plus the weekend, because I was so nervous. I used to get sick on Sundays, like physically I would want to throw up because I was stressed out about Monday because I didn't want to let the kids down. I had to learn the content, make the presentation, figure out how to present it to them, go teach it to them, find out what I did wrong, reflect on it, do it better the next day, and all the while planning for the next semester, all the while coaching, all the while trying to have a life. So that was my big problem then. Then I would take on more at work and I started doing anti-racism work and equity and inclusion work. And then, and I would do that alongside the other stuff that I was doing. So then that was my new big problem, my new focus. Then I had coaching. My first year teaching, I was coaching three sports. And all the while this, I'm trying to maintain a relationship with my family, my friends and my sister. So by the time this year rolled around and COVID hit, I look at it, I was one of the lucky ones. This was a blessing for me because I had so much going on in my life that doing this work didn't seem possible. Running a campaign to create sustainable change in Calgary didn't seem possible because I didn't have the time for it. So COVID pulled back my schedule and I filled my schedule back up. I was like, cool, I can't coach anymore. Got it. I have time for, for doing some activism work. 
online teaching. I got to master that. Awesome. Now I have some time to start helping people write some things outside of school. Now I can start following my own passions. Now I can read more. I filled my time up because I have teach many teachers will explain that they'll live a life of attrition for so long. Who's going to last longer that the moment you start taking things off of our plate, well, it's not too hard to put things back on because we've lived that life caring so much. I teaching is, is a career path that is going to be with me forever, regardless of what my future looks like. I am envious of your students, your passion for them and for the work and what you do really comes through and how you speak. And I can only imagine that even virtually on the screen, your students are very engaged and very interested because you certainly have a way with words, Courtney. I appreciate it. (laughs) We've touched on questions about connection already, actually, in these conversations, but in the interest of veering into the connection heavy questions that I have for you. The first one I wanted to ask, and it's not on the list, and I'm not sure of the answer, so sorry to put you on the spot. Talk a lot about engaging and getting engaged. And I wonder how closely related engagement and connection are. I think they're intrinsically related. Everything that I do in life is kind of built on relationship building anyway. It's the career path that I've chosen twice now between teaching, between the politics, it's really relationship building. So it's about building connections with people and seeing how it goes. I gotta admit, part of the reason why I was willing to make this step forward is because I sat down one day a few months ago and I messaged every person in my phone that I thought would respond. And I ended up messaging 80 to 90 people. And I got about 82 back, give or take. That's mind blowing. It's mind blowing that when I said, hey, will you help me with my election? Will you just come to this meeting just so I can share with you what I want to do? How many people would respond and engage and just want to have a conversation? When I sat down and I started making those phone calls and I started making those text messages and I started emailing people and I sat on a Zoom call in the modern world with 80 some odd people enthusiastically telling me that they wanted to see me thrive and they wanted to see me successful in my new endeavor as a city councilor. The fact that I had those connections, it really speaks to something that I've always known was valuable, but never needed to tap that resource. Building these relationships, I've just never had to use them before. So now that I actually had to sit down and work on a process to find out how many people were willing to give their time to me, to build that connection, I was blown away by the response. And it it cemented something. It cemented the necessity of being someone who can do two separate things. One is to engage, but there's a a great conversation on how you engage. Engaging is important, but then there's a separate conversation on how to do so. And I believe that is just through humility and authenticity. And I've not always been humble, but as you grow up and you go through a variety of different experiences, that humility, it allows you to adapt and change. It allows you to reflect on the things you don't like about yourself. It allows you to reflect on the things that other people don't like about you and ask yourself some pretty deep questions about who you want to be. And then when you figure out what that answer is, that's where the authenticity comes in. Once you've figured out who you want to be based on how people are reacting to you and existing with you and how you are sharing this world together, then you get to decide the person you want to be and which person that you want to put forth in the world that represents who you actually are. The authentic person. And that's when people will start to engage with you. And that's when people will start to connect with you because that's the moment that they'll see something in you 
that they themselves want to feel. We touched on humility and authenticity as the foundation for connection. When it comes to the act of connecting, how do you connect? I would like to think that I don't waste a lot of space. You can speak to many of my friends and they'll tell you that I don't really come around for a lot of meaningless conversations. We have those friends that we text nonstop for sure. But then there are people, my partner, she calls them cactus friendships. And I think it is very fitting. You don't need to water them very much, but they're always going to be there. I find that very valuable because it means that the connections that you are making with people, they're very meaningful. Six months down the road, hey, I just want to see if you're okay. Just see if life is good. Hope you're doing well. Just checking in. That's a powerful phone call than someone who you are talking to every single day. And we all have these different people. We have some people that we need to talk to every day and some people we don't really strategizing when to connect with people has always been a good thing for me. And while you're doing it, if you take your time and you, I don't want to use the word strategize because it's kind of robotic, but if you're not wasting those moments with people, then you can really start getting at some very powerful questions. If you're only talking to someone once every couple of weeks, then you call them and you say, Hey, how are you doing? Your life is good. I hope you're well then you're going to get a meaningful response if you actually want the answer. Because I think we've all had that question. Hey, how are you doing? Fine. And they're just like, me too. And they're both crying inside, but they just don't want to talk about it. If you ask the question, expect the answer. You want to say, hey, how are you? Be prepared to hear it out. Make it meaningful. Don't waste it. I guess is, is, is pretty much how I run my circles. I can actually show them that honoring their time. You strike me as someone who is always present in wherever they are. And I think sometimes it can be alluring to people to be connected in a sense of constantly connecting via social media, via text message on the phone versus being present in whatever you are currently in. And I think that there's a difference in that. The the difference being the space, I guess, that you're holding when you're allowing yourself to be fully present in a conversation with someone over the feeling of obligation that some people may have. Yeah. <laughs> I like to think that when I'm doing something, I'm, I'm doing it. I'm doing it full and I'm giving it all my attention. And sometimes that's actually like a positive and, and, and a negative thing, of course, because just like you're describing is if, for example, if I start making these phone calls randomly and I start connecting with people every single day, and that's not actually what I like want to be doing or need to be doing, then that is working against me because I'm not going to be present in those conversations because I don't have the energy for it. Like, I, I don't, I don't have that right now. I can't provide it. I can't give you that part of me right now. So if you ask for it from me and I start saying yes all the time, then I don't know. I'm just watering down that energy. It's like you mentioned tra- attracting you to have the conversation with me in the first place, because I'm not going to be able to give you what exactly you're looking for. The reason why I have so much energy to give to people like you, and the reason why I have so much energy to give to my friends and and the people that I love and my students, the reason why I have that energy is because I also give some of that same energy to myself. I am an English teacher. I love movies. I talk about them way more than I should. I can't watch my movies with my own father because he talks too much. It's like, I'm giving my full attention to what is on screen. I love it. It's art. And people are like, what just happened to you? And I'm like, I can't be in this room with you right now. I am focused. (laughs) I am watching this movie or I am reading this book or I am doing some homework or studying. And in those moments, I have to give my all to what I'm focused on. And that's just the balance that I need to, to make it all work. 
And I don't strike that balance perfectly all the time because sometimes I do water it down. And sometimes when people are in need and I'm busy, then I have to prioritize, drop what I'm doing and redirect my energy. That's a whole different part of it. But nonetheless, you've got to be able to focus on yourself just as much as others so that you're capable of continuing this output. Self-connection, right? I think that's a big piece of the puzzle here is that actually the idea of how we connect has so much more to do with the inroads we've already made into ourselves and what, how we understand ourselves and how we can operate best in order to offer anything to anyone else. You, you could argue that that relationship with yourself needs to be pretty sturdy first before you can truly offer meaningful connection externally. Mm, Definitely. I agree. What do you think connection will look like in five years time? Great question. One of my biggest challenges right now, actually, is that I'm not like a social media person. I, I, I am obligated to exist in the digital world where I don't love it. I'm the lurker. I'm happy to follow people's lives from a distance without never really posting on my own stuff. But this last year, because of my endeavors, I've had to engage in that degree of, of connection, that degree of social media, so that people can know that I exist and I'm alive. And it's kind of like you know, a little bit of self-promotion because it's all part of the work that I'm doing. But what I'm coming to realize, especially in this process, is that the world that we've built physically is one that has so many barriers to these connections. And then the infrastructure of the digital world has almost enhanced those barriers because of the fact that we're so far apart physically and now we are being kind of pushed together in a much more digital way that I actually see the pendulum swinging the other direction. And I'm noticing a lot more people are having those conversations on like what self-care is. And they're having those conversations about taking digital breaks and connecting with the physical world outside and seeing that has been powerful. And then you start to see like new innovative development that are existing in the city. I'll give you one example. There's a new development going up in Marta Loop in Calgary. And there's a courtyard in the middle of this building. It's open space. It's going to be stunning. And their idea was that the courtyard equals community. And I I echo it. And I really enjoyed reading about it because they're recreating the physical spaces that once existed, that built those tight-knit communities, even if they're small apartment buildings, community or neighborhood, whatever. They're building those spaces so that people can exist together. You don't need to be friends with everybody. But you're breathing the same air, sitting in the same courtyard and existing in the same space. You're providing energy to each other, no matter what. And I I think, and I hope, and maybe this is a little bit of an optimism because of my own biases towards social media and the digital infrastructure. I think that those spaces will begin to make a very large comeback. And those spaces will be where connections will be made and people will be more open to having conversations with random strangers. Versus kind of the social media siloing of our own worlds. And circling back to what we spoke about at the very beginning of the conversation, you spoke around disengaging the other. And I wonder if that can be more difficult to do face to face. It seems to me that it's an easier act to take online than it might be given the opportunity to have those conversations face-to-face with a stranger. Yeah, 100%. Oh, you're seeing the connections now. Okay, here we go. I'm about to nerd out. So this is my history degree. It was focused on Black America post the Civil War, so 1865 forward. 
And one of the most fascinating studies that I've ever done and ever realized while I was learning about it all was that the Amer- the United States was less segregated pre integration. <laughs> so what that meant is before all of these rules of equality came around in the United States, people used to live side by side. It wasn't until after the creation of suburbs and what's called white flight and people leaving these communities to create homogenous communities themselves. That's when all of a sudden the schisms of race started to become exceptional. The further apart they, these communities got, the harder it was to ever bring them back together to the table to understand each other. It became absolutely painful. I see that thread working everywhere. Like if you are a sexist, how can you be a sexist when you are sharing a a space with a woman who is doing amazing work? How can you be homophobic when you truly, this is why so many people drop that ignorant line of I have black friends. And the, the reason why they do it is because they are starting to recognize that being proximity to the other, proximity to people who are different from you will help you grow. Doesn't mean you actually will grow, side conversation. You can actually be really close to someone and be just as ignorant as ever. But the idea of working side by side with people, seeing them, being connected with them, going to school with them, working with them, dating them, eating dinner at their restaurants. Those are the moments where you start to appreciate the other. When you are face to face with someone and you see that they're just another human being, it, it's a bigger challenge to kind other than when they're sitting there in front of you, smiling at you with an open hand saying, how you doing? Try to figure out how you answer. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So much wisdom that you are sharing, Courtney. What is one piece of advice that you often pass on to others? So I talk too much. So narrowing it down to a singular piece of advice is challenging. I'll tell you about my advice people is this year. Find what you love. I'm modeling to my students what it looks like to love the work you do. I'm modeling to my students to love the subject matter. I love English, but I don't love all English. I don't love all texts. I don't love all books. I don't love all movies. I want to show them what it looks like to love something and what it looks like to engage in it and just really sink your teeth into something that you love so that when I tell them, okay, find what you love, they know what it looks like. It's no longer a question of just some generic, get engaged, some cliche, follow your passion. It's follow your passion because look how good it feels to be in love with the work that you're doing. I reflect, of course, again, on my own life and my own experiences, because I look back at the people that I admire, and that's why I admired them, because you could tell that they were passionate about what they were doing. They loved what they were doing. And how do I get that? And that was just like my career path. Now I'm looking at my kids every day for uh, an entire year, every semester, every class, one hour a day, I stand in front of them and say, here's what I love. Here's what it looks like to love something so that they can go out and find what they love. Because if they, they see that feeling in me and they recognize it in themselves, maybe they'll do it. And I mean, that's better than anything else. As long as, of course, they can write an effective essay and communicate their thoughts clearly. But, you know, beside that, find your love. As you were speaking, I wrote down the word unafraid. And then I actually realized that above that, I had written down something that you said in the video that you created when you announced that you were running for counselor of Ward 8. And that was that you taught your kids to be unafraid to be passionate and unafraid to care and as you were speaking about this idea of finding what you love and going for it I think the piece that came through to me is that it does feel like you are unafraid and I think that so many people use fear as a stopping point and one of the most 
refreshing things about this conversation is that it feels as though you are unafraid of sharing your experiences and sharing your learnings and your knowledge. And that is a bit of a novelty, I think, in this world. And I just wondered if it is actually like that underneath the skin, the way that I see it sitting here across from you virtually. I'm terrified. I think there's a conversation to be had about what you're scared of. And I have this conversation with people a lot, actually, in a variety of contexts. This is a language that I used in in my launch video was this idea of vision seeing something and knowing what it is you want. I don't think everybody has a full idea of what they want. And therefore, if you don't know what you want, then you don't even know what to be afraid of because you don't even know what you're pursuing. So for example, when I look at teaching, I am not afraid to be myself in front of them because my goal is to help them become the best version of themselves. So how can I achieve that goal if I'm afraid to do that for myself? But here's what I'm actually afraid of. I'm afraid of messing that up. My greatest fear, I'm too affected by this. I know I am. I'll walk away from a day, just one day. I literally teach 10 months out of the year, just one day, and it'll be a terrible lesson. And I'll walk away slightly frustrated at myself and I'll kind of get down on myself. And I'll be like, that was a terrible lesson today. I did a bad job. Logically, I know I can't be on every single day, but still I'm affected by the day where I'm like, I didn't do this well today. The reason why that bothers me so much is because the one thing that I am afraid of is not doing them justice. That's my biggest fear. I like, other than like, why am I a teacher? Like, if I can't do this, why am I doing this job? That's like my greatest fear. And it like hangs over me. And as I'm planning, as I'm coaching, as I'm providing, like figuring out where to provide my energy as I'm prioritizing, if I let them do, I shouldn't do this job. So this other stuff, this being open, I will admit it's a learned experience. It's not something that ever came naturally. I think for anyone who knows me like from five years ago, 10 years ago, I think I had a false front on all the time. And so I'm happy to admit it because just trying to make sure that I still don't have that false front on. I had this false front on because I wanted to be liked. I wanted to be, I wanted to be in this group. I wanted to be in that group. I needed friends. I needed connections. I needed people to be around me. I was afraid of not being loved and all these things. But now I'm very comfortable. You can change who you are, but you got to love who you are, especially as you're changing. And I take that into my classroom. And I'm like, this is who I am. This is what I want to do. And in my head, this is what I'm afraid of. I'm afraid of messing this up. So with that said, I always come back to my failures. There have been times throughout my career where this openness comes off as confidence. There is a degree of confidence in being open, but there's not always a degree of confidence in knowing what I'm talking about. And that's that humility I mentioned, always listening to other people and learning from other people. So there have been times in my life where I've thought I've known And I'll be super confident and I'll be like, I I, I think I know what the answer to this question is, or I think I know what I'm talking about and someone will check me. And again, the fear is not to be checked. The fear is not to be corrected. The fear is to let my students down. So if I do not let myself be checked and I hold my ego, my pride, if I let that pride prevent me from learning, then I'm failing the bigger goal, which is 
to do them justice. Trust me, I'm afraid, but I'm just afraid of different things, I think. The idea of sort of letting yourself be checked, I think is actually so powerful. And especially coming back to all the conversations that we've had over the last hour, this idea that it's okay to be vulnerable and the humility that comes with authenticity also, I think, adds vulnerability. This idea of the false front. I think of the fact that when you look at a lot of people, the face that they're promoting to the world is so neutral to be bland. And I think that the most interesting people that I've met are the people who embrace the opportunity to be wrong or be corrected versus not saying anything and running the risk of being called out for being incorrect. I agree. Neutrality is safe. <laughs> I, I have to admit the position that I take on a lot of stuff is, is one that leaves me very vulnerable and very open to a lot of mistakes, <laughs> a lot of mistakes. But with that said is when you're starting to see those mistakes and you start to, to rec rectify them, I view them a little bit as an opportunity. Recently, we we're helping students try and figure out what the race issue looks like in, in the school that I work in. And like, some of the conversations that we were having were just surrounded around the bureaucracy of it. Of like, here are the policies, here are the administrative rules, here are the, the ways that you have to do this. You can't do it the way you want to do it. So once I was explained to why those policies exist, I value them. They exist because of a series of experiences that people have had that said this can go wrong and this can go wrong badly. So you can't do it that way. So instant, I was immediately checked. I was like, this isn't going to work. You can't do it. And I'm like, cool. This is where I value those moments because instead of just turning around and being like, okay, it's not going to work. My immediate question is, it's how do we do it then? How do we do it correct? Because what a lot of people want to do is often well-intentioned, solid meaning, and it's often in the face of a clear injustice. That's wrong and they want to fix it. And they don't realize that there's a million steps to fix it, but nonetheless, they see something's wrong, they want to fix it. So if they start applying the solution and each barrier along the way tells them to stop, imagine what would happen in this world if all of these barriers stopped the people from actually ever addressing the injustices. See it, recognize the barriers, and figure out how to bulldoze through them appropriately. How do you solve the issue knowing what's on stake? So I'm having these conversations with people right now. I get that the answer is no today, but that doesn't take away the issue. And we have to figure out then how do we utilize the power that we have right now? What rules need to exist? What rules need to change so that we can address this issue on the scale that it deserves to be addressed? And it all comes from open yourself up to be checked. But understand that it doesn't mean you stop, it just means you pivot, you recorrect, and you keep pushing for the change that you started with, now with new information, with new processes and new policies, whatever it takes, but new information that's just going to make whatever solution you come to that much better. Don't stop, just pivot. I think that's a brilliant, brilliant piece of advice, alongside a lot of brilliant advice in, in a very short amount of time. In true paper napkin fashion, who should we connect with next? Hmm. Challenging question. My, my first thought is always someone who wouldn't normally be given this platform. I don't exactly know who that is. 
I'll send some recommendations your way once I reflect on it a little bit. But someone who wouldn't be given this opportunity normally, finding those people, hearing from them, those are some of my favorite stories. So I don't know who that is yet, but hopefully I can help you find someone. That sounds amazing. And that is the hope with this podcast. So I really look forward to that further conversation. Thank you, Courtney. Thank you so much for your time and for your authenticity and your openness uh, and your bravery. I really appreciate you as a person and this conversation. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate the platform. Anyone who's willing to engage in these ideas, I'm willing to support. So please, if you ever need any support in anything else, let me know. That's it for today's conversation. Thank you so much for listening and connecting with us. If you liked the podcast, please subscribe and review. We'll be back next week with another impactful connection. Until then, be kind.